welcome back to the Pros and Content Podcast brought to you by Notch. This season, we're talking to digital growth and demand gen marketers about how they use audience journey strategy and metrics to accelerate business growth. I'm Ellen Schwartz, Senior Director of Demand Gen here at Notch. Today's guest, Eric Martin, has an impressive approach to conducting a demand gen audit, which he ran at SalesLoft and was the first thing he did as VP of demand generation at Stack Overflow. We talked about how to understand the value you bring to your customers as you scale, partnering not only with sales, but with finance too, and how you can take ownership of the work you're doing to grow your marketing programs. Really quick, do me a favor and check if you're subscribed so you don't miss any episodes this season. We'll have interviews with marketers from Chili Piper, Gong, Stack Overflow, and more. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pros and Content. My name is Ellen Schwartz. I'm Senior Director of Demand Generation here at Notch, and I'm excited to welcome Eric Martin. You are Vice President of Demand Generation at Stack Overflow. Welcome to the show, Eric. Yes, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I appreciate that you could spend some time with us. Start with an easy question. Can you tell us a bit about your career and how you wound up at Stack Overflow? Oh, easy question. Let's see. Uh, So career journey. After college, uh, went into uh, my first job out of college was actually being a, a customer support manager at a website hosting company. I did that for nine months and decided that wasn't the way for me. Very demanding job. And this was before the cloud. The servers were in the other room. (laughs) <laughs> nice. Were they refrigerated? Uh, no, they were not. Just a lot of big fans. <laughs> and uh, so after that, I went to uh, IT consulting uh, for financial institutions uh, in New York. That was actually a great first kind of major phase of my career where I learned how to collaborate cross-functionally, work on big projects, give me a lot of good foundational experience just for collaborating in kind of a, in a corporate environment and understanding the demands, managing projects with critical dependencies and, and all that good stuff. Uh, so uh, it doesn't sound too exciting. It was very fun, foundational to my career. Following that, um, started to get into startups. So went to Boston, uh, joined an interactive TV technology startup. There was a thing called interactive TV before the uh, the iPhone was invented and became the interactive everything device. It was a good learning journey, but wasn't terribly successful in terms of growth. Learned a lot. The next startup I worked for was an enterprise uh, mobility startup located uh, right outside here of Atlanta. Uh, that was a relatively successful uh, venture. That was a, um, a company that made a platform. So you could write uh, software with a low-code environment and make it flexible and kind of cross-platform. And so that was a cool product. A little bit ahead of its time, but it was uh, sold to a, a larger conglomerate. Following there, I really joined the springboard of my career, which was SalesLoft. And uh, SalesLoft, the sales engagement platform, one of the biggest, most exciting, I think, uh, sales and MarTech uh, categories. Uh, out there right now today, a much, very much a mature market now with some big players. And I took, uh, you know, at SalesLoft, I was uh, privileged to join that team as head of demand gen and led demand gen all the way from 5 million ARR to 95 million ARR. And that is a journey. Like no a big journey. Yeah, yeah. So that was a lot of fun. That's incredible. And that's actually a little bit of what we're hoping to dig into here, because what I saw in stalking you on LinkedIn, you have listed a demand gen audit while you were at SalesLoft. So I'm curious, what is that? And is it something that other people could reproduce? Yeah. So my career has taken me you know, from a number of different types of companies. And uh, the one thing that's been pretty much a constant about wherever I've joined as a marketer is I've always performed this audit. I performed. I just performed it at Stack uh, last year when I Stack Overflow, and I joined uh, last year. 
and that served me well here. Uh, but I think that the biggest, most robust one that I did was um, was probably for uh, sales off just because it was so, you know, it was, it was so nascent in its growth. When you join at that, you know, I joined Stack and it's a much more developed company, much more of a flushed out product and motion and go-to market strategy. So I had some advantages joining Stack here with that. But with SalesLoft, it was very formative. It was very much, you know, here you go, Eric, here's your laptop, make it happen. And so the, the first thing that I usually do is just go into, you know, what does the market look like? This is a big living document that I create. The first being, you know, what is that total addressable market that we're in and that we're trying to capture? What are the segments of the market that are maybe weaker than others where you're trying to grow them? Uh, where is our core segment of the market that we're seeing a lot of strength in now? And what are the new markets that we want to open up as we evolve as a company? Think about that three to five-year vision. Yeah. yeah, that was new for the company, thinking through that, going through that exercise. And I was proud to be able to conduct the first one. Are there any particular things that someone could look at for the different, for the TAM that would say they're a good or a bad fit? Or is that all very dependent on your company? It's very dependent on your company. I mean, there's so many different types of business models out there. There's B2B, there's B2C, there's B2B2C, there's, you know, there's different markets. There's uh, the commercial and growth segments. There's SMB, there's mid-market, there's enterprise. People have different names for those. I think it's understanding really which customers are seeing the most value and better understanding how you are serving them. What value are we bringing to the table for them? that they are finding to be sticky, to be a must-have, and, and really keeping that customer-centric viewpoint. I think it's challenging sometimes because, you know, when you develop a product, you whiteboard all the possibilities about, you know, who you can engage with, you know, the new markets that you think it could apply to, you know, maybe a new persona that you think that this technology could be helpful for. And really, you've just got to focus on what works, you know, <laughs> in the beginning and focus on creating some sort of repeatable process, something that's more predictable and kind of uh, building your foundation on that. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So we've kind of, we've established our TAM. We've looked a little closer. What would you do next? It's really take a look at, at once you've determined where you are going as a demand generation function and as a marketing function, you have to make some choices, right? You have to understand if you have a lower end of the market product or you're just trying to you know, sell something to smaller teams, more transactional sale, they're most likely going to fall into what I would call like a lead funnel. You know, your traditional lead funnel. This is the, the language that all demand generators speak with each other, right? It's leads, it's conversion, it's, it's inbound traffic. It's yes, it's any buzzword you paid, organic, everything like that. The constant chase of any of these things. Yes, the chase continues. So better understanding, you know, how that inbound function can support you. I'm not saying the inbound doesn't work in those upper market segments, but it's not as dependable and scalable as a model. For instance, if you've got a mega-sized corporation, they've got 500,000 employees, you get one lead from them, that's great. But that, that's not really going to lead to an enterprise-wide deployment. It's going to take a lot of relationship building, a lot of outbound support to go for that market. So from the inbound perspective, looking at the ROI analysis, what are those channels that are bringing in value? You know, how's organic traffic growth? Is it flat? Okay, that's common for a lot of companies having flat organic traffic. It's very common. I, a lot of people outside marketing, you know, sometimes think it's very easy to grow organic traffic. It is not. It is not easy to grow organic traffic without achieving very big company milestones like, like fundraising or big media coverage. So uh, I think it's... Um, understanding that growth trajectory and how paid programs fit into that. 
Yeah, I would like to dig into that a little bit more because I think it's easy as a demand gen or a growth marketer to feel like everyone's doing something bigger and flashier than you are. And that if you just find that one viral thing, then you're off to the races. And I think what I'm hearing you say is there should be a bit more strategy and substance behind what you're trying to do. So can you dig into that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's a, you know, it's a great call out, right? Because not everyone does a Super Bowl commercial. Exactly. Or should. Right. Or, 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 or should <laughs> name a stadium after themselves or something like that, right? That might not be the best use of your dollars if you're you know, trying to bring in transactional SMD business. It's really about, and this is something that is a more heady concept and finance talks about it a lot more, but it's, it's about your customer acquisition cost. And, and how much are you spending to generate the type of demand that you're looking for, a very specific type of demand, a very specific type of customer. So I think in terms of, it's kind of not a fun answer, but it's taking what you get in as revenue and uh, understanding the cost, both in time, resources, and effort in people that it takes to meet those customer acquisition cost obligations. That is oftentimes forgotten or kind of passed over when you become a very prominent brand and your brand kind of takes away, you know, it almost takes off. And uh, then you feel that need to be defensible in your market, to defend your market position. Those are very far away milestones, you know, going from foundational demand gen to an understanding what a dollar in is going to produce on the way out. It's a very long road to having to spend and defend your brand. And so um, I think it's just being pragmatic in those decisions and, and making sure that you are driven just by anecdotal feedback from sales or the go-to market function that you uh, just base your decisions in data. Yeah. And I think too, what's important about the customer acquisition cost is it's a very directional piece of data for the entire company. It's something that's going beyond just your cost per lead. Yes. So I remember when I was first in marketing, like the cost per lead, the lower you could get that, obviously the better you are doing, but it is very dependent on then the quality of those leads. Like I can get my cost per lead down really low. For low quality leads. If they don't, <laughs> yeah, if, <laughs> yeah. If, if they don't turn into customers, then yes. it didn't do anything for the business. So it's, I think, really good, again, just to look a little further down to understand is what you're doing impacting the actual business case. That's a great illustration of my point. I think it's very telling. You'll know very quickly whether you're delivering that quality that you need to. And I think it's important that you just don't look at the funnel holistically. Like if you have different market segments that you're serving, have a funnel for each segment. The small to medium-sized business segment is completely different than an enterprise go-to market for sale. So, you know, making sure that you just don't try to glom all them together into this one group of customers when they have very different needs, they behave very differently, and you want to be delivering value as a demand generator. That's a very important thing for me. And that's something I coach my team every day to is, are we delivering value with this nurture email program that we're making? Are we delivering valuable content that people are going to not only enjoy, but they might learn something or feel delighted by, you know, the, I mean, learning something is kind of a delightful emotion, right? People like that. So how do you generate that kind of, uh, you know, a great brand marketer I work with always talked to me, we said, surprise and delight, surprise and delight. How can you do that through your demand generation activities? So that's the softer side of, of what we're trying to achieve as well. Yeah, I've heard someone else anchor it into, can you entertain or educate. So I thought that was interesting that you said like education can be valuable and it's something that can be 
interesting to you. So if that's something that you're able to provide the value through education, I think that's something that Stack Overflow does a lot of, at least in my experience as a marketer. So how do you lean into that? How is that the value you're providing? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the wonderful thing about Stack Overflow is that it's just such a strong brand. I used Stack Overflow when I was growing up learning HTML and CSS and and all that. It was an extremely uh, helpful tool for me. But the brand that it's established, it's that go-to resource. The tab is always open to Stack Overflow. You know, this company is really, Stack has changed a lot, a lot of lives. It's helped people to blossom into the career that they're looking for, that they self-selected, they're driving that self-learning for. So yeah, having a brand that's associated with that is extremely strong. Yeah. So have we made it all the way through your demand gen audit or did I take us down too many different paths? No, there's only a couple more parts. I think I talked about the inbound side, right? So if you have a lower end of the market, there's the inbound component. Uh, conversely, if you're in the in the land of large deals and you've, and you've got a more enterprise-oriented sales business, you want to look at your account-based funnel. So you've got your inbound lead-based funnel and your outbound account-based funnel. And you want to look at that a little bit differently. It's less about a conversion path and the points and percentages along the way and the efficiency and, and experience of that. It's more about how do you engage with accounts on a number of levels? So how do you engage with the right decision makers in a company? How do you collaborate with the SDR team, whether they're sitting in marketing or whether they're sitting in sales? And I don't want to get into that (laughs) because it's, it's, (laughs) it's a coin flip. Regardless, you have to collaborate. You have to support your SDR team. And SDR teams are often really the biggest potential growth engines for an enterprise business. So I really stress that. That's a big part of of how are you running an account-based play is how are you collaborating with sales development. Yeah, the podcast listeners couldn't see me do a little fist bump for that partnership that exists with SDRs. This is at Notch. We just started this really strong partnership between our SDRs and our marketing team. And it's something that had in my career always been very, there had always just kind of been that glass panel between the two teams, right? To where it's like, we're gonna do everything we can to get you the right leads. Here's some good follow-ups, but they're also always gonna be doing their own thing. They're gonna be doing their own outbound. We used SalesLoft, but it was just like, now that we're really looking at the same goals, the same end goals, but also the same accounts. And am I like, it helps me so much as a marketer to say, shout out to Jasper and Ty, who are our SDRs. They are like, these are the accounts we want to talk to. So I can look at my data and say, it's like, well, I've, I have or have not talked to, you know, 25 of these accounts. Mm-hmm. This is another great way of saying this is or isn't working. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard job. SDR is a hard job. I have a tremendous respect, you know, being in that industry and, and even some more. So we have a, we have an awesome sales development team at Stack Overflow. They're pros. I think what makes them so successful is you know, Stack Overflow is really great at career pathing, identifying that once you become a, an SDR, that, that isn't the end, that's the beginning, right? That's one point in your career and, and providing paths to where you want to go, whether it's sales or marketing or customer success. I think that's really critical on any SDR team as long as they feel like they have a path forward where they can take those skills and apply them further along in their career. Yeah, I've seen a lot of SDRs turn into awesome salespeople and awesome customer advocates too. Yes, and every now and then uh, when I was opening on the marketing team, I've seen that happen too. So it's pretty fun. I think the other just other components to that account-based funnel are field marketing and events. What's the role that they play? Uh, not all event strategies and field marketing programs are created equal. I think um, you know the pandemic has shifted a lot of the term to virtual. 
Um, I don't think that's going anywhere. I think that's still a very productive and efficient way of executing. And I think that will continue. But I think there's gradually going to be a shift back to uh, events. Our uh, Stack Overflow customer conference was just announced September 28th in New York. So I'll throw a little plug in there. Flow State, too, yes. So we're excited about getting back in person. But I think, you know, it's going to be a process. And uh, it's more important than ever to really take a good hard look at uh, the investments you're making in that area when you're you know, kind of on that enterprise go-to-market journey. And I think that uh, the final piece of outbound is you want to measure that differently. It's not just about the source and, and the pathing and through the funnel and just in like the conversion rate stages like with inbound. You've got to really get a little bit more... I don't want to say creative because you don't want to get creative with numbers. You just want to get the right data. You got to be creative with how you are able to socialize this information. I think one of the strongest aspects of the audit that I do is I have a, I have a finance component to the audit. People talk about Smart. the alignment between marketing and sales all day long till they're blue in the face. And we know we got to get along and we know we sometimes disagree, but ultimately we're in the same boat. So we all got to row. We've all, we all know that. Not a lot of people talk about marketing and finance alignment. I think in our current complex uh, macroeconomic uh, situation, it's more important than ever, but it's always important. That's always something that I hold really dear to me is creating that partnership at every level of finance so they understand not only the dollar in, dollar out, but the broader contribution. So when you're building that attribution model for you know outbound demand gen, you're speaking English. And the people on the other side of the table understand uh, you know, what you're saying. And it's light on the jargon and it's heavy on just these are the business drivers. This is the return on the investments we have. You know, a great examples are uh, different channels mean different things for different companies. Sometimes events are just all about customer retention. You know, I think a good example would be a Dreamforce, probably one of the most legendary, if not the most legendary uh, SaaS conference out there. That is, of course, about gathering new business for them. But I would imagine it's also just about connecting and engaging with your customers, strengthening those relationships, strengthening your partner community. So there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to quantify that return just outside of the dollar in, dollar out. The more you educate finance and work with them to help them understand what you're doing, the better. Yeah. And I think the other thing to underline with what you said is speak their language. Make sure yes. that you're not trying to introduce a new metric when you could say it a different way that is more straightforward or just already an established piece of vocabulary. I'll echo to the events. I think you're right. They're here to stay. I've seen a lot go hybrid as well. But that's also been one of the best ways to get customers together and talk about your product, right? As if they mm-hmm. can sell it to each other, that helps you leaps and bounds. I've seen customer conferences be really, really successful in the past. So yeah, they're, a lot of, they're a lot of fun too. It's great when you can get away from the screen and, and talk to customers and they can tell you how truly valuable what you are marketing uh, is. And that's, that's exciting. It's fulfilling. Yeah, too. absolutely. So if I can kind of summarize really quickly what you would say your steps are for your demand gen audit process, identify your TAM, understand inside and out what pieces of that are or aren't the right place for you to be playing. Mm-hmm. Start to communicate that up and down the chain start to define what your metrics are going to be for success. We specifically mentioned the customer acquisition cost, and that's something that'll be further down than the leads that you're bringing in, something that ties to that business metric. Mm -hmm. And then in a really, let's see, can I summarize this last bit really well to say that there's going to be a lot of things that you need to take into consideration, the different channels or the different techniques and understanding what it is that you're trying to do with each of those and then communicating back to the business 
what's been valuable. Yeah. What I do. You did great. Did great. I mean, okay. I think the only, um, you know, the only other things that I didn't mention that really rounded out are just the basics. So infrastructure and budget, people, who's on your team, who's doing what, who, uh, you know, assessing what folks' capabilities are, where do they want to go in their career and develop? And how do you want to grow your team to align not only with who you have and kind of the gaps that you might identify and want to fill with capabilities, uh, but also how do you lift up the people that are on your team and help them really get engaged and grow and develop a career path for them? And then just getting a handle on the budget, you know? Always. You know, so the basics. It's really fun. It's one of the most exciting uh, parts, I think, of my career is diving in and understanding challenges and building a vision on how you can tackle those. That's incredible. And I actually wanted to dig into your career a little bit because I do see as you look through your history, there is a gradual shift into your now VP role. So you had been tactical. Now you're up here, you have your own teams, you're helping to develop those. What is it that you would advise someone who is hoping to be on that track? What is it that you point to that helps you be successful in this VP role? That's a great question. And I think that... um, from the folks that I've talked to, a lot of folks don't realize how big that leap is uh, a lot of the time in terms of responsibility, in terms of level of executive impact that you need to have. I think the biggest differences, particularly between the director level position and VP are at a director level, you really are about leading a team, growing them, being an effective leader. But when you make the jump to VP, you have to inspire this followership right? That where people want to, the people that work for the people that work for you want to be along for the ride and they want to know and understand their contribution. And so I think it's, you have to inspire that followership within people. I think that a way that you can just practically think about that, if you're in a director role and you're interested in VP is, you know, the way I, from my perspective, um, you know, building a strategy, that's something that lives on for six months or a year, right? Because strategies change. In my job, I report to the CMO. My job is to translate his vision for demand gen into an effective annual strategy that we execute on. Now, at my level, at the VP level, I have my vision for how I want the team to grow. And the directors that work for me, they develop their strategy for how they want to execute on my vision. And so it kind of cascades down like that. But the vision becomes even more critical at the VP level, you know, frankly, because you're just working with more of the company's resources. So it's something that you have to, you have to vet cross-functionally, make sure it's aligned with all the, you know, the big strategic initiatives of the company. And I think this goes hand in hand. I don't know if you've heard of the first team concept. Can you describe that really quickly? It's that the, you know, your first team are kind of those cross-functional partners that you were working with to make change. So you know, I always stress that I'm an advocate for the folks that work for me. I, I want to make sure that they feel like they're in a healthy work environment where they're growing and they, they enjoy their work, but it's challenging and provides them with that ability to take the next step in their career. I think that um, the first team are the people that you are working with, the people that you are doing the hard work with cross-functionally to achieve those, those more challenging grander objectives that are cross-functional. Things like uh, executing a big uh, event. I think when you get larger revenue operations becomes a lot more cross-functional. Marketing has a big role in it, sales does, and even you know general revenue operations as well. So really establishing and sticking with that first team of cross-functional partners, that's something that becomes increasingly more important as you grow into that VP level. 
And yeah, I mean, I think those are the big ones, but overall it just takes a lot more time, a lot more hours of work otherwise. And that's yeah. how it is. Just got to put in the time, understand who you're around and what it is that they need to do their job well and work well with you so that you can become really grow those partnerships. Yeah. And I, you got to have a mentor too. I wouldn't be, you know, so many people have mentored me, uh, including former bosses, former colleagues. I think building a strong network of people that you can go to for when you need guidance is absolutely critical. If you can start that whenever, like before you get your first job, awesome. <laughs> you know, 100%. But, yeah. I think it just becomes increasingly more critical to have that kind of counsel as you advance further along in your career. Absolutely. I will always point to the people who brought me with them as they grew, as they taught me big things that are a huge part of where I am today. So that's a wonderful insight. And I think it's a great way to wrap up the interview portion and move into the lightning round. Are you ready? Oh, yeah, I think I am. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. First question that I'm asking everybody, what keeps you up at night as a growth marketer? Oh, um, as a pipeline. Pipeline. That's the job. The the whole job of demand gen is to make sure that you are generating pipeline, helping be the growth engine for the company. And whether we're we're at goal, we're past goal, or we're behind goal, it's always there. And it's always the thing that keeps me up at night because it's got to be a constant and predictable flow. And until you get to that level where it is that constant and predictable flow of pipeline, it's front and center. So pipeline. All right. What is a marketing campaign that you point to as something you would go back to or that you would repeat? Let's see. A couple of things. I'd say it's Stack Overflow relaunched our new Teams website. So that's not technically a campaign, but it was a big cross-functional project. We did it in-house, which is so very Stack Overflow and so incredible. We have an incredibly talented team. That's the first time in my career I've ever developed a website in-house with, oh, no, wow. with no agency support. So that was really incredible. And I mean, yeah, so I mean, just that to me is cool enough to be mentioned. Um, In terms of a a specific campaign uh, that I've launched, I think the first account-based campaign, truly account-based campaign that I ever worked for uh, or worked on at SalesLoft, we had this kind of buyer's journey campaign where we we just really, from everything from the creative to the direct mail to gifting to you know the physical mailers to the videos, the SDRs we collaborated with, they were doing note writing programs, and you know, and this is when we were all still in the office, and, and we'd get them all a bunch of pizza for lunch, and they'd you know just write personalized notes to prospects, and and that was just so fun and rewarding because it was the first major one I ever worked on, and. And it was just great to fully see it to completion. Just all those assets coming together, one kind of brand campaign. It was really fun. Yeah, all the rehearsals paid off for the final concerto. Absolutely, absolutely. If I had any musical ability, then I would be able to relate to that. <laughs> well, that's what I went to at least. But I think that's it's always a really satisfying feeling to know that all of those moving parts came together and it worked. Yes, it was great. Very good. Okay, best place you've traveled. Best place you traveled. I did actually have a couple notes for this. Uh, London is probably my favorite city right now. I haven't been there since uh, before the pandemic, but really love London. Can't wait to go back there. If I want to get away, I like a place called Highlands, North Carolina, which is a population of about a thousand. I hope they're not mad at me for mentioning it. It's, <laughs> it's a little town up in the Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina that's just beautiful and serene and a great place to get away. And if I want to go to the beach, I love Southern California, Orange County. I nice. love that. But I love Florida too. They have great beaches as well. They're uh, so yeah, those are the spots that I think about. 
Okay. So East coast or West coast, I'll have to like, see if we can reach out to some tourism boards in mountain time and central time. Mm-hmm. To get your hey, attention. Yeah. I love Denver too. <laughs> love Denver. That's for, for mountain time. I'm a big fan of Denver. Oh, well now you're just letting me feel like I'm sitting here in Kansas city feeling left out. So I, Missouri's on the list or is it the Missouri side or? Yes. Well there, done. Yeah, well done. You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Yep. You've nailed it. Yeah. All right. Final lightning round question. What was your pandemic cliche? Oh, um, I grew a beard for the first time in my life and uh, it looked really? terrible. It looked terrible. And my wife did not hold back and she let me know no, it looked terrible. So How long it did you keep about, it? Uh, about two months. And okay. uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, wasn't for me, but I figured, hey, if there's any time, March and April of 2020 are the definitely beard growing seasons. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, but that's that it. was the right time. Yeah, otherwise, the uh, weather did, you know, just like the rest of us. Well, very good. We're hoping to see the end of it at some point in our lives. It'll be great. Well, thank you so, so much, Eric, for your time and your, for your expertise. I would just have one final question to ask you is what do you want listeners to take away from this conversation? Uh, that's a good question. I think if you're going to take away anything, first of all, reach out to me. I, I love it when people reach out to me and want to talk. So you can find me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or want to dig deeper. Happy to chat. I think that um, the one takeaway is your development is on you. Your development's on you. It's not on your boss. It's not on the people that you work with. It's your responsibility. Uh, You want a mentor, go out and find that mentor. You want a career path, draw it out. Chances are the company you work for hopefully has some resources for you that can support your development, but it's on you. And uh, that's the way I've operated my career in demand gen. It probably applies to every other profession out there, but uh, it's just good bread and butter advice that just keeps me going every day. I like that. It's a great way to wrap up. Thanks again. It's been really great to chat with you. To any of our listeners out there, thank you for spending time with us. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to Pros and Content wherever you found us. This season, digital growth and demand gen marketers are sharing how they use audience journey strategy and metrics to accelerate business growth. You can find us online at notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H.com. Thanks so much, Eric. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Pros and Content. Don't forget to subscribe if you found this episode informative. This season, we're focused on how marketers prove their contribution to business growth at all stages of the funnel. Find more episodes wherever you're listening and learn more about uncovering your organization's true audience journey at notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot com.